Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing? We've been giggling. <laughs> We've been really giggling. Think, yeah, but we're having a great time. We are. Um, and today's show is very glamorous, very exciting. It's all about the silver screen. <laughs> we'll be talking about books that engage with cinema, from F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Last Tycoon to the criticism of Pauline Kael in The New Yorker. As usual, our theme is inspired by our guest. Today, we are talking to the fabulous Danis Biota whose latest novel, Innocence and Others, is about two female friends who are both filmmakers and the stress their relationship is put under when a new woman, Jelly, comes into their life. Octavia, do you want to say a little bit more about Dana? I sure do. Dana Spiota, Spiota is an American author of four novels, Lightning Field, Eat the Document, which was a finalist for the 2006 National Book Award, Stone Arabia, which was a National Book Critics Circle Award finalist, and a New York Times notable book of 2011, and this book, Innocence and Others, which is just about to be published in paperback by Picador. Spiota was a Guggenheim Fellow in 2008 and a New York Foundation for the Arts Fellow in 2009. She won the 2008-9 Rome Prize and the 2017 John Updike Award. Um, she lives in Syracuse with her daughter Agnes and teaches in the Syracuse University MFA program. And having interviewed her, I now want to go and study there because she's so rad. Yeah, she's really rad. Just listen in. It's great. <laughs> um, so we will be interviewing Dana, discussing the theme of cinema more generally, and then giving our usual book recommendations. So sit back, relax, grab some popcorn, and enjoy the show. I love it when you're cheesy. Sorry, I just love it. It's my favorite. <laughs> Dana Spieta, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Um, so we've asked you to start with a reading. Would you mind setting it up? Okay. This is from the second chapter of the book, and it's the introduction of a character named uh, Jelly. And uh, I think this kind of s explains itself. Um, she She's a kind of um, proto-catfisher, pre-internet catfisher is the way I describe her. Um, and I think the rest is explained in the chapter. This is called Jelly and Jack, 1985. Jelly picked up the handset of her pink plastic trimline phone and the dial tone hummed into her ear. She tilted the earpiece slightly away from her and she heard the sad buzz of a distant sound seeking a listener. How many times had she fallen asleep after she said goodbye and not managed to get the thing on the cradle? The little lag when his phone was hung up but you were still on the line in a weird half-life of the call, semi-connected, followed by the final late disconnection click, then silence. And then, if you didn't hang up, sharp, insistent beeps. These were the odd ways the phone communicated with sounds, urgent beeps to say hang up, long belled rings to say answer, rude blasts of a busy signal to say no. The phone always telling her things. She pushed the 11 buttons, the one, the area code, the number, zeroing in, the nearly infinite combinations ousted, her fingertips not needing to feel the grooves of the numbers, but feeling them nevertheless. So many distractions, unneeded and unwanted. She had to concentrate to keep the information away. There was a bird outside trilling at her. It was at least 15 feet from the closed window, but it still bothered her. It must be in the Chinese oak in the courtyard. The ring of another person's phone sounded so hopeful, and then it grew lonelier. It lost possibility, and you could almost see the sound in an empty house. He didn't have an answering machine. Make a note of that, a distinction. You can let it ring all day. Is that true? Has anyone ever tried it? The plastic rubbed against her jaw and her ear. She tilted it away again. If she lay on her side and let the receiver rest on her head using only a hand for balance, she could talk for hours. Hello? 
said a male voice that cleared itself as it spoke, so the end of the word had a cough pushing through it. Then came another cough. Was it the first time he had spoken today, or had she woken him? Roused from sleep was a special, intimate opportunity. She closed her eyes and focused on the white of ease, of calm, of joy, the pure and loving human event of calling a stranger, reaching across the land and into a life. Hello, she said, her voice sliding easily through the L's to the waiting hopeful O. She always takes her time. Nothing makes people more impatient than rushing. Who is this? It's Nicole. Nicole? I think you have the wrong number. This was a crucial moment. Is this Mark Washburn? Uh, no. I mean, it isn't. Who is this again? Nicole, I'm a friend of Mark's. I thought this was his new number. No, that's weird. I know Mark. I mean, he's a good friend of mine. Oh, my. How awkward. I'm so, so sorry I disturbed you. Uh, she rarely used a, uh, but it was an important wordish sound that introduced a powerful, unconscious transaction. Used correctly, not as a habit or a rhythmic tick, it invited another to complete the sentence. An intricate conjoining, it was an opening without content, just the pull of syntax and the human need to complete. Jack. Jack Cusano. Jack Cusano, not Jack Cusano, the record producer. Uh, yeah. Jack Cusano, who composes film scores, the gorgeous work you did on those Robert DeMarco films. That's right, he laughed. His laugh cleared out his throat a bit more. She lay back on her pillow, held the phone so it barely touched her cheek. She imagined her voice going into the transmitter, sound waves being turned into electrical pulses, up the wires to the phone lines, to a Syracuse switching station, turned into microwaves speeding across the country with the memory, the imprint of her exact tone, her high and low frequencies, her elegant modulations, to the switching station in Santa Monica, sending electric current up the PCH to a Malibu beach house and into Jack's receiver, undoubtedly a sleek black cordless phone. So fast, too, instantly made back into a sound wave by the tiny amplifier near his ear. All that way, all those transformations, but no distortions. A miracle of technology. The sound was as clear as speech in a room. She could, she could, amazing, hear the ocean in the background. A gull, the sound of water pulling back from beach. She swore she could hear the sun shining through his west-facing windows. I could uh, I could listen to you read for yeah. hours, don't I? You have a wonderful <laughs> voice. Go into catfishing or something. Yeah, like that. <laughs> I'm into it. Yeah, I'm really into it. Well, it's good because I'm on the phone right now, so it's the perfect way to read that section. Exactly, <laughs> it is. It completely, completely is. And I was thinking, listening to you, and thinking about about Jelly. This, you know, this woman who is a phone freak. And for our listeners who've not heard of that, that's freak spelt with a ph. Um, right. And I was thinking about how these days everything is written, like we text, we WhatsApp, and actually the number of people that we speak to on the phone and that amazing intimacy of voice is getting rarer and rarer. So reading this story where there's this character who con conducts her, her entire kind of world vocally um, is really, really interesting. Could, could you explain just for our listeners who, who maybe don't know what phone freaks are, <laughs> what their, what their yeah, deal is? Yeah, I mean, is? phone freaks are... I, I was I became really fascinated with them. They were um, around in the early '70s, and they were early hackers. They a lot of them ended up being like Silicon Valley guys later, famously. 
Silicon, all the famous Silicon Valley people started as uh, phone hackers. And they would just get um, – the phone system at that time was all tones. It was pre-digital. And they would get these little boxes where they could um, hack into the phone lines, make phone calls, and actually talk to one another through the phone lines uh, on, on these open sleeves circuits. And, uh, and they were – they were, it was very illegal, so it was also a, a kind of an outlaw thing to do um, to, to kind of, uh, in this counterculture way, sort of uh, defeat Ma Bell, defeat the big corporation, and do this thing that you weren't supposed to do. It didn't really have, it wasn't a way to make money or anything like that. It was just a way to kind of be inside something you shouldn't be inside. Yeah, and, and for you, um, this is a book all about film. It, it, the two, I guess, protagonists friends are um, filmmakers and yet there's this element of just the spoken word and of course um, this character Jelly ends up having a film made about her but I wonder if you were thinking about that contrast between film which is such a combination of so many sensory things and uh, the phone which is really just sound and voice. You know, that, that is it's very true, and I didn't think about it at first when I was writing the book. I was really thinking about sort of like uh, confident con games and confidence artists and how Meadow as an artist kind of seduces people and Jelly seduces people. And so, I w- and I was, you know, as I was writing it, I was realizing there was much more of a contrast between sort of vision and sound with those two strands of the book. Um, I mean, Jelly is really... Um, uh, oppressed by by what she, how she's perceived visually, she doesn't like the way she looks, and and so she doesn't want to be seen, uh, or she can only be seen through her voice, and feels most herself uh, through her voice. And I guess it was partially when I was writing the book, I was thinking about this idea of what um, we have a very visual culture, and to have when you see something, it kind of gets directly into your subconscious in a way that kind of overwrites whatever you're told about something. So if something, you know, like a fake photograph on the Internet, you can hear that it's fake, but you see that image and you believe it. And so there's a way that I was trying to interrogate sort of visual things and how they work on us, not just in terms of technology, but just just what we see versus what we know to be true. And, and that has on a personal level affects Jelly. And, of course, um, it, it sets up a lot of drama because Meadow – Filming Jelly is this kind of violation, right? And it's not going to end well, you know that, um, to expose her. Uh, And so that got me into this interesting place of what the ethics are, really telling somebody else's story and filming somebody else. And, you know, these days we – People are constantly letting themselves be filmed and putting films of themselves uh, in various places and not really understanding the effect of it or the repercussions of it or sending photographs of themselves. And so I was very interested in this idea of how we embrace these technologies that we don't really understand how they affect us. And then we think, oh, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. I didn't want to be filmed or I didn't want to be seen. Um, so this kind of it kind of came out of my own just trying to figure out um, what's changing in the culture uh, and as we become more and more visual and uh, less and less focused on bo- both uh, uh, audio sound, as you say, but also written things, too. Uh, we text a lot and we write a lot of emails, but I, I still think that in, in terms of cultural dominance, the visual always trumps everything else. Yeah, I think that's I think you're totally right about that. And And the thing that I enjoyed and found really interesting in this book is that you have this character, Jelly, like you said, who's not comfortable with her visibility with her physical 
persona. Um, and then you have Meadow and Carrie, who are both filmmakers, and they're also women who are not really on screen, right? They're women who are controlling the gays themselves, which felt really exciting to me, actually, because when I thought about films, um, I'm sorry, books that I've read that are dealing with film and directors and stuff, they tend to be about, you know, male directors, these big, great figures, these dick swingers. And I really enjoyed this narrative being in the hands of these two women. But what you said about ethics and exploitation is incredibly interesting to me as well, because it, it, you know, was it, was it your intention going into it that you wanted to give this medium, give the power back to the female gaze, I guess, by, by having Carrie and Meadows directors, or was it a more organic evolution of that as you wrote the book? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, it was just at a certain point I realized that all the main characters were women and that seemed, I was happy about that (laughs) because yeah. uh, And I have, um, you know, I I really was interested in this friendship between Meadow and Carrie and I wanted that to be a, you know, a a kind of driving force in the book, which is that this sort of lifelong friendship in which there's highs and lows and, and uh, competition and love and support. And I wanted it to be complicated. And I was, I had, I did go in thinking like, I don't want to write about a romance. I don't want to write about a marriage. I want to write about a friendship um, because I think it's different and it's not as a written now it seems to be getting more written about, but it's, when I was writing, I was thinking, like, this is something I want to write about. I want to write about a, a marriage again, you know? And, um, uh, and I think what's interesting about a friendship was, is that you really can kind of, um, not talk to each other for a year or be kind of irritated with one another and you're still friends. You know, it just comes out the other end because you've been friends so long. It's like you can't stop being friends and you need that person who's known you your whole life They're, They sort of uh, keep you humble or keep you honest or or do something for you that people you've you've met as an adult don't do for you. So they're valuable and, and precious in that connection, that length of that connection. And you don't get really divorced from your friends. You may lose touch or something. But um, so they have kind of more liberty to be. Uh, weird friendships, more particular, and they have less pressure on them to be a certain kind of a thing the way a marriage does. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I love the way that you talk about their friendship. And and because um, we get different chapters from each Carrie and Meadows perspective, we see all of the flaws that they're finding in each other. And and I, right. I you you sort of hear Meadows' perspective about an amazing film she's making, and then you'll you'll see Carrie kind of being like, <laughs> <laughs> that seems pretentious. Um, and there's one point uh, where you have this wonderful line, which I haven't written down, so I'm I'm gonna incorrectly. Um, paraphrase but it's something like Carrie knew how to be friends with Meadow it's sort of she yeah. she accepted her for all of her inconsistencies and weirdnesses and still sort of embraced her yeah that's right I love that line. that's actually one of my favorite lines of the book because I really felt that you know Carrie really loves Meadow and I knew that when people would read it they would think well Meadow's a jerk you know <laughs> <laughs> she's mean or um and so I wanted it to kind of withhold Carrie's a more you see a little bit of Carrie's point of view in the beginning of the book, but you get that big long essay where you find out about their childhood and what Meadow meant to her, and it's almost like Meadow has built up so much good, um, uh, you know, uh, she can she can kind of uh, ignore Carrie or not be as generous to Carrie as she used to be because Carrie still feels indebted to Meadow, still feels like Meadow made her who she is. And I, so I, I like the complexity of their relationship. And, and you know, Jill, at certain points, Carrie does stand up to her and say, 
why are you so hard? Why are you so mean? And uh, and I thought that was interesting too. That when Meadow kind of lets Carrie help her, it's kind of a, the power dynamic really changes over their lives. When they're kids, Meadow has all the power. She's the more, she seems to dominate Carrie. But when they're adults, Carrie gets really successful. Meadow starts career starts to kind of tank and um, and it changes that that power dynamic and sometimes it's very difficult in a friendship to endure those changes in who's up and who's down and who's the leader and who's the follower um, it's very seldom that everything's equal <laughs> perfectly equal between two friends I think yeah absolutely and the differences between that these two characters is emphasized because they're working in the same field right they're both making films and the kind of yeah. films that the yeah. kind of work that they make is so completely different and actually you use the word generous there you know kind of more about Carrie and, and Carrie Carrie's films are more humorous and more generous I guess to the viewer in some ways and Meadow is much yeah. more self kind of self-indulgent maybe I, I've got a soft spot for Meadow because I identify with her a little bit so I feel like I can't say that she's a narcissist because it's too painful but um, <laughs> I think that um, I do too no I think I mean the thing about Meadow is she tries to change and she tries to become when she realizes that she's been this kind of um, unrelenting person. And I was interested in this idea, too, that women, um, when if, if Meadow were a man and she was that kind of unrelenting artist, no one would really question it. But because she's a woman, it seems harder for us to accept her that way, um, that she's so um, mono-focused on her work. And I don't think of her so much as a narcissist because it's really her work that she's obsessed with. She's, you know, she's what Jenny O'Feal calls like an art monster, right? She's yeah. just yeah, yeah. focused on her art above everything. And it's harder for women to do that because we're, we're not supposed to be that ambitious and that intellectual and that ruthless, yeah. you know? Uh, we're nodding <laughs> And so Carrie is definitely a softer... <laughs> more nurturing character. And I, I relate to both of them, honestly, and Jelly too, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be able to write them if I didn't feel myself in all of them, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the, the discourse that then emerges between the two different styles of filmmaking, between Meadow and Carrie, was that like, is that an interest of yours anyway? I was just thinking about it more, the kind of, like you say, like the art monster, the Andy Warhol-esque approach versus the kind of, you know, M Carrie's very invested in, reclaiming certain genres for women isn't she, she I mean yeah, I, I yeah. would say she has a feminist no, I think I, drive I realized I have to make the case for both of them yeah. you know and I really do I appreciate what Meadows trying to do in her work because she's really she believes that she's you know being unsentimental and truthful about making people uncomfortable and and I definitely think that's a valuable thing to do as an artist um discomfort people and get them out of their kind of cliches about the world and the received ideas but I also think that Carrie's seductiveness, where her idea is to take, you know, a raunchy film and recast it with women like a bridesmaids-type film, and that's subversive in a different way. It just changes uh, in, a, you know, it kind of sneaks in the back door. And in some ways that can be more powerful because more people see it, it affects more people, and it really changes the culture in a broader way. So it feels more, almost more subversive um, to do it with this sort of seductive uh, tweaking of existing genre and, um, and sneak in your, uh, your change in perspective. And, uh, and so I think there's merits to, to them. And I don't think you really have a choice about when you're an artist, you're kind of what you are. And so um, it, it's interesting, uh, I think, to, to kind of um, 
work those things through. And of course, also I'm trying to think about this idea. I've written about this in my other books too, about whether having an audience, a big audience is really what that means for, you know, if you're an artist and nobody appreciates your work, then what does that mean? Cause you, you make your work for other people to read or to see. So I'm always thinking about that too. Um, what, uh, what it means to be have a, a popular audience or not. And novels are one of those things where you're kind of, there's a popular audience for it, but it's not like making movies or making TV. And so you're kind of marginal in the culture in a way. Um, and so I'm always thinking about that too, about um, what the role of, of your relationship is to your, to your audience and whether you have an audience or not. Yeah, it's it's hard not to think about that dichotomy reading the novel and not think about you yourself as an author and the choices that you've had to make in terms of the stories that you're telling and the way that you tell them. Um, yeah. And, and you know, I was very interested how this book was marketed in the UK, for instance, which I think it's it, it has a sort of cover that suggests that it's a book for women, that it's going to be about female friendship. And in some, you know, I think it's a bit more complex than maybe it would suggest apologies to, to Picador. <laughs> but I, I, um, and I, and, and yeah, those commercial decisions are being made all the time, both by the people who are putting out the product, but also by the artists themselves. And do you ever have, do you ever struggle with that in your work? Do you, do you think a lot about that when you, when you're writing or is it just what comes out? I don't think about it at all when I'm writing, but I do think about it after I'm done. And, you know, there's all these things that come up with the publication in the U.S., when you know, uh, it's pretty similar to the U.K. in terms of, you know, they have to figure out a way. It is a consumer object. It's a piece of art, but it's also meant to be bought and read by people. Um, and you've got to find a way to communicate to people quickly uh, with a cover or with a description of the book. You know, it's always hard to say, well, I can't really reduce my book to a short description. And yet, you know, you can't be too precious about it. If there's, this is a noisy culture, if you want anybody to read your book, they've got to know about it. And, um, and so I always think I don't worry too much about um, what it says on the book cover or any of that or the I just because I just know as long as I don't have to change anything in the book. <laughs> and then I think it speaks for itself. I do think sometimes I've, I've had um, moments where books of mine have been kind of described in a in a magazine or something in a way that makes them sound like a playful romp, you know, like, and, and they're not. And that feels, I know the person's going to be disappointed when they get the book because it is, there is humor in the book and the book is, is, and I try to, it's try, I try to make it propulsive and entertaining and have, mis, you know, uh, drama and all that. I want the reader to be engaged and enjoy, but there also is other stuff in it. There's, there's weirder, more discomforting things in it. And so, um, I, you know, I, I think, I think most people, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to, yeah, I don't know how to, to think about it really. It's a challenge to think about it really. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a, it's a complicated one because you're, you know, like you said, like a book is it's an it's an art object and it's also a, a, a unit of commerce and, and like, like, you know, film as well. Um, and I was I was thinking there's a lot of this book feels almost hyper real because you're reflecting, you know, the culture. And it's set at the beginning, at least in the 80s. Um, and there's you, you you're you involve the like Internet in it in, in a commenting on um, essays and like various different forms of literature kind of appear and uh yeah it, it 
I don't know hyper, if hyperreal is exactly what I mean, but it felt like a reflection of our reality that was amplified somehow. And I don't know if that was because of the, the characters through which we were approaching these things. Um, but it felt almost a little bit fetishistic about, you know, the, the film, the paraphernalia of film, which includes these discussion boards online and this whole thing about you put something out there and then it it continues to live in the minds of those who kind right. of consume it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I haven't thought about that, but that's true in terms of that uh, has a kind of response built into that in parts of the book. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it, and to um, me, it felt like a wonderful collage almost of these. Like, I could almost imagine this book becoming this vast project where you have like a website that lives with people commenting and you have a film of it because <laughs> it felt so kind of plugged into all of the... I think that's what it is, is what I'm trying to say. Is it's, it's a multisensorial novel because you are isolating different senses, you're isolating vision, you're isolating sound, voice. So to me, it felt it felt much bigger than just words on a page, which was something that I found very thrilling about it, actually. Um, and oh, it, good. Yeah, no, it really, it, it really connected with me in these kind of, like you're saying, this discourse about the way that, that we live in this visual culture these days. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it's exciting. So you think, Carrie, it's like an energetic thing. Totally. That's great. And I, you know, I really wanted um, the challenge of writing about all these non-prose things with prose. I, I do this, I, I am interested in writing about films, you know, there's imaginary films in the book that I describe, and that was really fun. And then the phone calls, people's voices, all these things, uh, but just doing it with the sentences uh, was really exciting to me. And also just conveying the idea of the internet and how that affects us now and the parts of the book that are contemporary. Uh, without being too gimmicky or cutesy or whatever, I wanted to just kind of have some of that uh, feeling of what it's like to be alive now and kind of track back where we came from in terms of how we relate to each other through technology and how that changes intimacy. One thing was really kind of essential because I was going to be talking a little bit about machines like film and filmmaking and, and uh, cameras, but also uh, telephones, was to also make sure that they, I really wanted the, the book to have a emotional intensity to it. I really wanted the emotion to carry you through. I wanted you to feel, um, you know, the, the emotional stakes for the characters and, uh, and let that be what so I, mean, I didn't want it to be a cold book or a book that was just, you know, intellectual or something like that. I really wanted to have feelings being involved in it. And, and that, I think, is where, um, you know, the friendship, but also Jelly, um, just kind of reminding myself to remember she has a – where even though she doesn't like her body, she has a body. So always just thinking about what the phone feels like, the sensual quality of, of, the, of the things that they were – the machines that they're using to kind of talk and not talk to one another or to see or not see each other. Um, and there's some poignancy in that, that the kind of wanting to be close and not being able to be close. Like I was very, it felt very um, emotionally wrenching to me to think about Jelly falling in love with Jack and then just not being able, just having, you know, not being able to, to trust him in any way because, um, because of her fear about mm. um, his rejection um, all of that uh, I wanted those emotions to be really um, alive in the book yeah I, I certainly felt that and I think that's true of film too that it's incredibly technical but ultimately um, you know the result is often very emotional and I think both Carrie and Meadow 
think about that a lot when they're making films and when they're thinking about films as well. And actually, we've themed our show around films. So we wanted to ask you a little bit about your okay. your writing about film and your engagement with film. Because to me, mm-hmm. what well, first of all, one of the things that was really delightful about this book was just how many films and filmic history you engaged with throughout. It felt almost like a lesson in the history of film. Um, and, you know, it, it, I, I was just wondering what kind of research went into that and what kind of thought went into that presentation. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really, I tend to write, write about very obsessive characters, extreme characters, and I think that's very interesting to me because when people really immerse themselves in something, it's always um, yields interesting, unexpected uh, insights into it. And so um, well, I knew Meta would be really um, obsessed with film. Carrie is too. So in order to make her real, I had to kind of do a lot of research to get her to figure out what her sensibility was and, you know, what she would be moved by and what she would be influenced by. And I, and I am interested in this idea of like what makes you, you know, how the things that you love make you who you are, make your identity. Because sometimes we think identity is just about, um, you know, race or class or gender or all these things. Are, and a lot of it also is, you know, what you loved, especially when you were young, shaped who you are, what you read, what movies you saw, what music you listened to. So that kind of formation of sensibility seemed to be a big part of the story here. So you see it both Meadow and Carrie um, at a young age and how they became, they developed their identities um, as artists and as women. And uh, so to do that, I had to kind of go through what each one would be interested in. Um, and and the comedy was what, um, comedies was always what uh, Carrie was interested in. And uh, and Meadow had this more attraction to these uh, more intense um, art films or, or and particularly documentaries. And, uh, and I did do, watch tons of movies. And I even, you know, there's a part in the book where she, in, in the kind of um, what turns out to be fake essay, which I'm not giving much away because you, you realize it pretty soon, um, and that it opens the book, she talks about seeing um, Citizen Kane uh, 20 times in a row, and she writes about that repetition. And, uh, and I, you know, watched Citizen Kane a lot to write that. <laughs> not quite 20 times, but I am kind of a method actor type of writer where I kind of live what the characters are doing to kind of find a little detail that I wouldn't have noticed. So I try to do the, I try to get the same obsessions they have. I love film and I've always loved film. And I had a teacher just like the girls in the book had a teacher um, in high school. And in fact, I name, use his name in the book as an homage with his permission. Uh, (laughs) I had a teacher in high school who showed me all these French new wave films and just totally changed who I was. Um, and so I was really writing to my own experience when I'm talking about them uh, learning about film when they're in high school and um, and how that changed how they uh, viewed every they viewed their regular old TV shows that they would watch. And it right. changed their, you know, and that was my own experience was that, you know, um, those things and that high low thing where you might really be interested in this great European film, but you also like to watch these TV shows. And so your art comes out of a uh, kind of pop culture and high culture. And that's sort of in the book too. You can read my book and you'll, there's as much about, there's a lot about um, TV as much about, you know, 
bad TV as there is <laughs> good fun. I, mean, I try to kind of get that whole experience of how we figure out uh, what we think is beautiful and why we think it's beautiful. Yeah, and it is. It's a wonderful mishmash of things normally, isn't it? Like you said, from the high to the low. I mean, for me, maybe this, I don't know if Carrie would feel the same way, um, but me as a, as a Brit, I found this book to be so bound up with things that I connect with Americanness, you know, like film, obviously, because of Hollywood and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, mentioning the French New Wave and everything like that is a um, is obviously a different strand to it. But for me, like the, the, the bits that are set in California, I've never been to California. So California r- remains this kind of fantasy America in my head. <laughs> um, right. But, I, you know, to me, yeah, there's there's stuff about this book that feels very incontrovertibly American. Um and and what you were saying about, you know, the way that we build our identities by reflecting things back and forth. Um, do you think that um, that the United States has a kind of a, a problematic relationship with cinema or or or, or one? Or am I picking up on something because I'm a foreigner? Do you think I, I can't really tell? Say that again. I mean, do, like, does the do you think that America has a a more specific relationship with film, I guess, than maybe other parts of the world because of Hollywood and L.A.? Or, or am I picking up on that because it's an alien to me? I don't me? know. I mean, I feel like, th- th- to me, it seems that the... Um, I mean, I don't know. I've only lived uh, really in the United States, so it's hard for me to judge. Uh, you know, I do think that it does seem that I've never seen a place that's more obsessed with, with movies than Paris and France. So I think they win on the movie <laughs> obsession. That's true. Yeah, sweepstakes. Uh, you know, um, but I, but it's true. Uh, growing up in Los Angeles, that you do get uh, you do get the sense that film and TV, you know, the whole entertainment industry is the is the whole world, right? And that way, it's kind of a company town, and that everyone just talks about that. And uh, and other parts, you know, if you're in New York City, you'd have the literary world there. You'd have all these other things. LA does have that. Um, you know, dominated by that industry, and so it does kind of get an outsized. Uh, level of focus in your life for sure, and um, and I do think that it's it's still the best American export is you know these TV shows and movies that other countries still like uh, you know not a lot of American products <laughs> like the iPhone and some you know movies yeah. Um, so yeah mm-hmm. it it definitely it definitely seems that way um, and uh, and I think California does have that. It's kind of this, it's a little bit of a cliche about California, but it's a cliche kind of because it's true, which is that it has a kind of hyper-Americanness to it. You know, it doesn't seem, New York can sort of, it feels quasi-European, but, you know, there's L.A. and it's just L.A., you know, and it feels more American. Yeah. Um, But Um, um, for better or for worse, although I noticed when I was in L.A. that there were a lot of British expats living in LA like it seemed yeah it's very cool in in London right now everyone's moving to LA (laughs) everyone's moving to LA because our weather is so appalling exactly um and so finally I I just wanted to ask you um the the difference between film I mean there are so many differences between film and books and people have written lots of things about this and we won't have to go into too much of that but (laughs) it struck me um in this book, especially thinking about film and what a mass media it is versus a novel, which I mean, many people can read a book, but really a book itself is a very solitary experience. Um, it is. And yeah. 
I, I don't know. Was that a dichotomy you were thinking about when you were writing this? Was did writing this book make you think more about it or differently? Yeah, about I mean, it? I think about it a lot, and I've been asked that question a lot. And I was one of the things I really wanted to make sure is that when I was talking about film in the book, I wasn't secretly talking about writing. You know, I hate those books where it's like you're it's a painter, but we know it's really the writer. You know. Yes. And um, so I really wanted to make it. I was really imagining filmmaking when I was writing about filmmaking. Even though, of course, there's things about being an artist that are certainly true about being a writer and being a filmmaker. But there are things that are very specific to filmmaking that I wanted to, them to really have that specificity. And so I, I did think about it a lot. And, and, um, and I had some cute ideas at the beginning about doing sort of filmic, more filmic things in the book in terms of form. And some of them are there and some of them aren't. But, but it was fun to have such different mediums and then push against them. Mm -hmm. um, so I really like the idea of trying to describe a film in a book, uh, a vis any visual thing in a book or a musical thing in a book in prose is always a challenge. And writers have been doing it forever because it's just, they're always, there's, you know, writing about paintings or writing about symphonies. So writing about film is, is not unique to this book, of course, but it was interesting that there's so many things you can do. You can do it from somebody watching it and you're in their head, like Carrie watching it, or you could do it as a sort of screenplay kind of format, or you could do it in a sort of more distant third person narrator. You, you, there's all these options for how you want to get it on the page. And I kind of did them all, uh, depending on what the narrative needed at that moment. And that was really fun to have this like, extra constraint and challenge. And then how you distinguish between what's happening in the movie and what's happening in somebody's head. Because when I'm watching a film, I kept thinking about like what happens to you when you watch a film. And one of the things that happens to me is uh, that I like is that I start to, sometimes it reflects back on my own life, my own, you know, something, I'll see the film and I'll be immersed in it, but I'll also think, oh, that reminds me of this other thing. And so um, I wanted to capture the experience we have in our consciousness when we're watching things um, and how they kind of interact with your own memories and kind of use your own consciousness as part of their meaning making. And that was interesting to me because um, I do think novels are really good at describing consciousness, interior thoughts, in a way that that's one thing that film really can't do as well as a novel. When a film tries to do somebody's interior thoughts, it's, you know, like a weird voiceover or mm -hmm. just has a kind of fakey sort of feel or artificial feel, while a novel really can kind of naturally create the sound of somebody's interior thoughts, or at least it feels that way when I read it. And, uh, and so that's always a, a good thing to explore, I think, in the novel is, con is, is a mind, what it feels like to be in somebody's mind, because that is something that the novel's so good at compared to other media. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think the thing that film can do that really prose can never do not really, prose can try, is it can do simultaneous things. So you can have somebody talking with music in the background and you're getting, you can't do that in a, you, you have, you're sort of stuck with a kind of linear thing in a book. While film, you can have sort of multiple things happening all at once uh, in an image. Uh, you can have talking and sound and music and uh, actor space. There's a, there's a kind of simultaneity that's very hard to do in a book. Um, so all those things I find kind of interesting, like what are the limits and what can I do? And if I try to do something in prose, that's the way I see it on the film that can kind of in, helps you come up with something new, a new way to write prose. And I was kind of inspired by Orson Welles, who is in the book sort of, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, because when he, when he made Citizen Kane, he had been working in theater, right? And, um, 
and he hadn't made a film before. And because he was trying to do theater things in film, he invented all these new things. Uh, and so there's always that, I think, by, you know, kind of pushing against and kind of comparing what a medium is versus another medium. I think you can get a lot of uh, interesting innovation out of that. That was a brilliant answer to my question. Thank you so much. Um, I feel we have so much more to ask you about Orson Welles and Facebook comments and everything like that, but we've run out of time. So I will just say thank you so much, Dana Spiata, for being on our show. The novel we've been talking about is Innocence and Others. It's out in hardback already from Picador, and it will be out in August in paperback. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here back with Octavia Bright, and we are going to be discussing the theme of our show today, which is film in literature. So I think first it's important to define what we mean by that and to exclude some things. So I think we should be talking about movies in books. So when people write about movies and books in all of their different forms, I don't think we should talk about literary adaptations, which I do think we should do a show about because it's very interesting, but not today. Okay. You're the boss, Carrie, <laughs> are you, babe. Are you You're the boss? Are you on board? Yeah, I'm totally on board. Totally, totally on board. Yeah. And so I also think we, we want to talk about nonfiction also that writes about film. Yes, because there's plenty of really brilliant nonfiction yeah. about film. Um, so first, um, We've discussed this on other shows. We did a show about art, for instance. Um, this wonderful Andrew O'Hagan piece about, which is called "Writers in Love with Other Art Forms," which he wrote in the FT in the in 2013, um, and he talks about novelists having shadow arts, so arts like theater or cinema or um, you know fine arts that they somehow feel an affinity with and tend to write about a lot. And I think there are definitely some novelists who have film as their shadow art. So I think Dana Spiota, we can definitely say. Oh, one, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. And also, I mean, I think it's interesting. We had Rachel Kushner on the show a long time ago, and that was when we first talked about the shadow art thing because her book, The Flamethrowers, was about um, the shadow art in that book is, is art mm. uh, with a capital A. And actually... Kushner is one of the pull quotes on the publicity for Dana's book and they really do speak to one another. They're both written by people who are invested in really describing this this shadow art form that they're interested in. Mm -hmm. And like Dana said in the interview, you know, she created fictional films that we went into, but she also referenced real films so that we feel bonded to the narrative in the same way that Kushner used, you know, real futurist art and also, I think, invented some of her own things as well. Um, but yeah, there are definitely... There are definitely writers that I think of as being... Well, there's a difference between writers who I think of as being cinematic and writers who I think of as having film yes. as their shadow art. Yes, I agree. So so writers that I think might have film as their shadow art, one that immediately sprang to mind for me was F. Scott Fitzgerald. Oh, my God, totally. Um, who writes a lot about Hollywood, even when he's you know not in Hollywood. There's the sort of glamour... Um, he talks a lot about films. He actually wrote, he, he was a screenwriter for Hollywood for, for a fair amount of time and was quite seduced by that lifestyle while still being uh, skeptical of it. So he, yeah, Fitzgerald definitely. Um, Tom McCarthy, I was thinking about the book Remainder, which is all about films. And, um, you know, I've never read any Tom McCarthy. 
know if you would like him. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you would. Maybe I should give him yeah. a go. Don't um, know. Like film. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes R- like remainder. Zadie Smith loves remainder. Oh, I love Zadie Smith. That makes yeah. Yeah. Maybe you should read it. Okay. Um, report back on the next show. Oh my god. Two okay. sh- in two shows time. In two shows three time. Sh- three, three four. Shows four. Time. Next year. Next year. Um, but let's talk about cinematic writing because okay. I'm interested in what you mean by that. So I'm excited by that because yes, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I when we when we decided this was going to be the theme, um, I thought immediately of Brett Easton Ellis, and not because I could think of particular you know descriptions of cinema and film in his books at all, but because his writing to me is so cinematic and reading one of his books can be an assault on the senses in the same way that like a Tarantino film or something that's very highly stylized. And I was thinking about this, the figure of the auteur director who, you know, like Hitchcock or um, Almodovar or, you know, uh, Tarantino would, would count as an auteur, directors who have, because the thing about film is obviously a film is a group effort. Uh, it's a collective endeavor. And an auteur director is a director whose vision overwhelms the fact that it's made up of multi, multi, uh, oh my God, I've lost my mind. Yeah, no, I know what you <laughs> Multifaceted, mean. Yeah. you know, yes. different people, blah, blah, blah. Whereas the the novelist gets to be an auteur point blank because the novel is, is just from them. Maybe they have an editor, but come on, it's it's their thing. Um, and I think that Bressy Snellis, I also think Donna Tartt, I would say, is like mm. an equivalent of an auteur director as a novelist. Her worlds are so immediately recognizable as hers the fullness of her vision is complete kind of totalitarian you you know you're in a Donatart world you know it's not quite the world that you're living in the same with Brett Easton Ellis and I was thinking also Nabokov actually Lolita to me is such a cinematic book and I don't think it's just because of the the connection it has with the film it's it's because it's so much about voyeurism I think and that you get into the territory of the filmic when you're when you're looking at that as well and also just writers who are great at producing very clear visual images, I think, write cinematically. And um, actually, when I was researching this show, I came across an interview, I think it's on Lit Hub with Werner Herzog. And I love Werner Herzog. Yes, what we, a we weirdo. We all love Werner Herzog. <laughs> the penguin. Um, hey. Um, he actually, <laughs> this is a, a, a quick anecdote, but they had him do a talk at Williams College and he arrived a year early. Oh my God, stop it. But he still did his talk. <laughs> Have you told Ollie Subtle that? No, but he probably, knows. he probably anyway, knows. Um, but he recommends, um, you know, to students that they read certain books to learn about film. And um, what he's interested in is really immersive books. And I think maybe that's sometimes what we mean by cinematic is just being completely sucked into another world or another being or another thing. So one of the books that he always recommends is The Peregrine by J.A. Baker, which is about this man who sort of becomes a peregrine, who becomes obsessed. Actually, Ali Sadal, our mutual friend, is obsessed by The Peregrine. Really? Yeah. So interesting. We should ask him about that connection. But um, get him on one day. Talk about yeah. It. Um, but uh, yeah, the Peregrine. Also, he he recommended the short story by Hemingway, the short Happy Life of Francis Maycomber. So, I've never read that short story. Yes, neither have I. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> but nobody's perfect, babe. Yeah, but um, but Werner Herzog thinks you should read it. Maybe I, we should know, cut that. I, yeah, out. maybe. We, no, 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 no. We're <laughs> keeping it in. Werner Herzog thinks I should read it. I'll probably read it. Yeah, and so of course, on top of what we think of as cinematic novels there are all of these novels about hollywood yeah and it's funny when i was when i was doing the research for this show that uh, this vast swathes of hollywood novels this genre that i have never read nor heard of nor will i ever read or think about but 
it's such a popular genre because, of course, people are obsessed with the glitz and the glamour, especially Hollywood in the 70s and the 80s when mm. these you know, enormous star vehicles were really clanking into action. Um, but I have to admit, I have no interest in them whatsoever. None. And that's not snobbery at all because I love trash, just different kinds of trash to couldn't, that. Couldn't you think of Innocence and Others as a Hollywood novel in some sense? Ooh, see what you've done there you really spun me on my head haven't you <laughs> yes yeah 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 okay fine the, the, but it's like the postmodern hollywood novel i'm talking yeah. about joan didion wrote a hollywood novel play it as it lays okay you're really nailing me with this <laughs> <laughs> i haven't actually read that but i do love joan didion so yeah i better put that on my list as well as uh all the others yeah i mean the the sort of classic ones that come up over and over are ellie confidential and other novels by james elroy and that's the sort of noir hollywood that mm. has spawned many copies and was copied from a copy um there's day of the locust by nathaniel west about hollywood in the great depression which i had not even heard of but literally every list or sort of article about hollywood in books mentions this book yeah so, i'd never heard of it either yeah interesting and um, and of course, Fitzgerald, who I already mentioned, wrote a book called The Last Tycoon set in Hollywood, which is a brilliant book. Is it? I've not mm. read that mm. either. Yeah. God, I'm really showing up my Lots of holes in my glamour. knowledge. Lots of glitz and glamour, but um, decay. Which is well. kind of the whole thing, because Hollywood is a big plastic facade. That, and it always has been. That's why people are fascinated by it, I think. You know, it's like the the cloak and dagger of the, sh the big showman. It's very Gatsby-esque, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It really is. And I think... What what interests us about Hollywood and about the world around film is that dichotomy between what we see and, and what is behind what we see. Mm, all those people pulling the levers. Yes. Yeah. Wizard of Oz. Well, totally. And actually, there's a character in Dana Spioda's book called Oz who who is, you know, I would have liked to talk to her about that as well, that reference, yes. because he is such an Oz figure. Yeah. And anyway. there are so many characters who are who are different from how they project themselves. Yeah. In, in a number of different ways. Yeah, totally. Um, so let's finally not forget about nonfiction. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> this is where my nonfiction yes, reading really because, kicks into touch. Because let's not go too like into the academic oh depth. Carrie's, you should see Very how nervous. far <laughs> up her forehead Carrie's eyebrows have gone <laughs> as she said this to me. They've like crawled into her hairline. No, I'm going to go gentle, but just let me, just let me say. Yeah, yeah. Wax poetic the on, on the nonfiction that we love about film. Okay, so I love uh, Gilles Deleuze is writing and not everybody does I think the, the trick with Deleuze if you're going to read anything by him is remember that he was a fucking hysterical lunatic and you have to go in with a big pinch of salt and laugh a lot and his his writing is funny um, his writing on film is less funny than <laughs> his writing about psychoanalysis but he wrote um, a couple of books Cinema 1 and Cinema 2 that are really really fascinating deconstruction of vision machines basically and the whole mechanism of taking this set this um sense that we have the sense of sight and amplifying it in this way and kind of the theoretical implications and it trickles down to becoming really relevant and really interesting and I, one of the things i loved about dana's book is that actually she brings you know some concepts that are rec recognizable from film theory into a story in a very natural way via meadow mainly the pretentious narcissist that i identify with and um you know it, it, it's something that i really loved um yeah and i will say as someone who used to engage with critical theory that of all of these critics i find deleuze one of the sort of most fun to read yeah, there's a playfulness really to his writing exactly the other person that i would n not get through this conversation without mentioning is laura mulvey yeah who wrote this seminal essay. Well, in fact, seminal is completely the wrong word to use for it because it was about reclaiming the gays. Um, 
but it was a really, really significant essay in the 80s about narrative cinema and the visual. And it was it signified a massive sea change in the way that people thought about the construction of images on screen. And I also actually met her at a conference once, um, which was amazing. And I was wearing a big coat that was quite kind of old school. And she came up to me and told me I looked like Lauren Bacall. And oh I God. nearly... <laughs> wept <laughs> with joy <laughs> and I was with my supervisor who just looked at me like girl that woman like her career is about look I don't look like Lauren Bacall by the way for anyone listening but it was a you beautiful do, you look a little bit like Lauren oh Bacall. girl keep going you're looking very beautiful today tell me to more oh, and you're wearing like a cool sort of see-through shirt yeah I just, yeah see you babe yeah I love it <laughs> <laughs> anyway Laura Mulvey top notch um Andre Bazin as well what is cinema which is a really founding critical text but it's great it's really really great and then I also wanted to say very quickly <clears throat> there's a phenomenal series if any of you guys are film buffs um which is directors interviewing themselves and so you have Almodovar on Almodovar Lynch on Lynch Burton on Burton and they are absolutely brilliant because essentially they take the thing that is at the heart of a great film director's existence which is their personal vision and their ego and they run with it and you get a real sense of the personality of these people um they are mainly men because they were published you know in the sort of 80s and 90s I think largely although I think they're still coming out yeah Richard Iowade just wrote Iowade on Iowade I think it was sort of a joke play on like that, a spoof but, yeah. but it did very well I haven't read it yeah he's in he's an interesting guy yeah. it's funny um and then there's also the other category I've got on my notes which is books written by film directors which mm -hmm. is a, mm -hmm. a you know a step away even further um but we've talked about on the show before the first bad man by Miranda July which we both really f found very interesting um I didn't realize, but Jodorowsky's written a book called Where the Birds Sing Best, which I'm interested in. And David Lynch, who's also a director whose work I absolutely love, um, a book called Catching the Big Fish, which I've also not read. Yes. I'm a little skeptical of these books because I think often film directors get book deals because they're film directors, not because they've written great books. I think that's But totally not having true. read most of these books, I, I mean, that's a little unfair <laughs> of me to say. No, darling, I love it when you speak from a position of ignorance. I think it's really humanizing and important. It's my jam. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'd, a quick shout out, just if you want a really like fun, gossipy book about Hollywood in the 70s, there's a book called Easy Riders Raging Bulls, um, and the subtitle is Great How title. Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll Generation Saved Hollywood by um, Peter Biskind, and it's really fun to read. I, I read it. fun. I read it when, when I was a college student, and it's just a joyful, gossipy romp Amazing. through 70s Hollywood. Okay. I'm down for that. Okay. So let's very quickly recommend our favorite books about film yes okay i'm gonna do i'm gonna speed this out so mine is my last sigh or mi ultimo suspiro by uh, luis bunuel who was a spanish uh, filmmaker but became globally very important he was a giant of international cinema by the time he died he was the co-creator of arguably the first ever surrealist film and she andalou an andalusian dog which he made with salvador dali and you can find that on youtube and watch it it's only 20 minutes and it's completely brilliant and totally weird this book is now out of print, but it's his autobiography, and it's so brilliant. He was a weird, bitchy, sadly very sexist person, but also a phenomenal mind and an incredible creator, and he had a really naughty sense of humor. Um, he was a political nightmare, <laughs> but was on the, you know, the side of the good guys. And the book is just an extraordinarily energetic romp through his mind and his sense of himself and everything. Um, you can find it, you can find it in bookshops, it's just not being printed anymore. Um, but just go in, go into it, yeah, in the knowledge that he's a provocateur. So you've just recommended an out-of-print book. I love it. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I have. But you can find it. It's yes. in all good libraries. Yes. Okay. 
Um, so I'm going to recommend something that's not strictly literature, but as we are a podcast, um, I would like to shout out to another podcast called You Must Remember This. Have you heard of it? I have, but I've never listened. Yeah. So it's it's hosted and produced and everything by this film historian, um, Karina Longworth. And it's a tour through the forgotten stories and histories of Golden Age Hollywood. So she is just a really nice companion. She does it all, but she does like voices and she it's deeply researched, but still really well constructed. So I recently listened to her Joan Crawford series where she goes through Joan Crawford's life and sort of explains. It's not just about Joan Crawford. It's sort of it's quite gossipy and about all of the things that Joan Crawford supposedly did and how she sort of um, fought her way to the top. But it's also about being a woman in Hollywood, what that was like. Um, it's about gossip. It's about the person we are versus the person we project. All of these things that we were talking about actually in relation to Dana's book. And she brings them out with a really light touch. But in the end, um, I, I finished that series thinking I know a lot more about Joan Crawford, but I've also you know, thought a lot about what Hollywood is and what it means culturally for us. It sounds really good. It's brilliant. It's, I, it's I a really, it, really good podcast. I think it's also recommended on My Favourite Murder, which is another podcast that I love. Yes. So I'll, I'll listen for you and for them. Okay, well, we will be back in a minute to give our book recommendations with Dana Spiotta. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also Dana Spiotta um, for our book recommendations. So, Octavia, would you like to start? With pleasure. Um, this month, I'm recommending a book called The Sea by John Banville, which was the winner of the 2005 Booker Prize, which I think was before it became the Man Booker Prize. So I think I'm allowed to say just the Booker Prize. Anyway, a friend of mine recommended it to me recently because I was about to go and work on a project down by the seaside, um, writing an opera, and it was all very uh, aquatic. And I was looking and delving into different representations of the sea um, to try and get some inspiration. And he was like, oh, my God, you have to read The Sea. And I picked it up and thought, oh, this looks like quite a straight book. I don't know how much I'm going to like it. And absolutely bloody loved it. I'm only halfway through because, of course, there was less time to read than I thought there would be. Um, but I absolutely love it. It's really beautifully written. It's a book that really revels in the power of the word. Um, it's very poetic and sonorous. Uh, and that this, the story is about, it's, it's kind of written as journal entries, this guy, Max Morden, who's a retired art historian. He's very self-reflexive. So you get this sort of self-analysis going on the whole way through. And he's mourning the loss of his wife. And then he also reflects on losses from earlier on in his life when he was a child. So it's a kind of meditation on memory and the unreliable nature of memory and kind of these narrative building exercises that we go on with ourselves that are very solitary. But really the sea in it is this constant inconstant and it's a metaphor that is not original but the reason we return to it all the time is because everyone can relate to it you know the sea is this figure in our lives that we we return to throughout our lives and we change and the sea never changes and yet is always changing and I found that a really beautiful um a, a, a very beautiful nugget to sort of hold on to the whole way through but like I said I haven't finished it so it could all go tits up in the second half <laughs> we'll see I'll that let you know it sounds great I I always dismissed it because I assumed it would be boring yeah you thought it would be a dick swing and no yeah. didn't you it's not it's very sensitive actually okay yeah um Dana could we have your recommendation please um yeah it's gonna be an old book um this is a book that I read a long time ago in school and didn't have much of an you know to, to impression on me um, because I was forced to read it 
and it's quite long. And then um, some of my students and I read it this summer, uh, Moby Dick by Herman hey, Melville. Moby there Dick. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so glad I reread it because I really missed so much when I was reading it the first time. It's just funny and so weird and so particular. There's, you know, there are these there are these encyclopedic parts about uh, whales, and you get so it's so precise and obsessive about whales. And then there's this great story, action story, at the same time. And I just found it very moving and alive, and um, a really uh, wonderful, fun read, um, a good summer read. And uh, and then you just you walk away and you're suddenly obsessed with whales. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite? Your What's your favorite kind of whale, Dana? What? What's your favorite kind of whale? Oh, it has to be the sperm whale. You, you know, <laughs> right, the case yeah, is made yeah. in the book why that is the most superior, <laughs> most majestic, sublime kind of whale, and it is big. It's it's, it's largeness is hard to argue with. Excellent. Um, I've been putting off reading Moby Dick my whole life and I feel like I just need to get on it don't come I? on now it's time I never it's finished it's way more it. fun than you thought it was because I think when we read it when we're in school it's just so tedious it's just it's not the right age you know yeah I also dated multiple men who were really obsessed with it which put me off a bit oh yeah that is off-putting there, <laughs> there, there's no there are no women in that book None. no women <laughs> yeah okay but now that you've recommended it I trust you so I'm gonna read it <laughs> right okay right so um so I'm going to recommend State of Wonder by Ann Patchett, um, which I will admit I've just started and haven't read that much of. Um, That's okay, babe. We forgive you. I know. Sorry. Um, but Ann Patchett is a writer that obviously most people know. She's won loads of awards. She's been on my radar forever. People keep telling me to read books by Ann Patchett because um, they think it will be my taste. And for some reason, I've just never picked it up, even though I had a number of books of hers on my shelf. And then my book group um, decided to read State of Wonder. So I started reading it. And I just can't believe that I've waited so long to read books by, by Ann Patchett. She's such an amazing right. prose stylist. Um, and she, um, she's such a pacey writer and a really thoughtful writer. And she writes such emotionally complex, sort of deep characters. So, so the, the story behind this book is... Um, it's about a scientist who is working for a sort of big pharmaceutical company um, and her colleague goes out to the depths of the Amazonian rainforest to find another scientist who was actually one of her teachers in college who has been working on this miracle drug but has completely lost contact and gone kind of crazy. Um, and he dies. So she's sent out to the Amazonian rainforest to find this woman, um, sort of isolated. Nobody knows where she is. And um, it's, yeah. That it's, sounds amazing. It's sort of like Heart of Darkness, but flipped on its head. It's really smart. And um, and yeah, and now and now I just want to read everything by Ann Patchett after I finish this. And also I'm going to Tennessee on holiday. So I'm going to go to her bookshop, Parnassus Books. Oh, yeah. Um, to in, which is in Nashville and is supposed to be really cool. You might have been there, actually, Dana. No, I've heard about it, though, and uh, I think she's great, and um, I would love to go there, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's my recommendation. That so sounds really good. Thank you all. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much.
Well, that is all the time we have for today. Thanks to our guest, Dennis Biota, who you can see at the LRB Bookshop in London on the 17th of August. We will be there with bells on. And also to Eddie Knight for production and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on ncs.live. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Please like us and say hi. We love to hear from you. Yes, we do. And we will also be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.